Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, September 13th, 2020, we continue our series titled, The Ideal, A Study in Colossians. Today's sermon, The Ideal Salvation, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Enjoy. I do have to tell you that today's message is one that uh, I come with great fear and trembling. Um, Paul is going to touch upon some language here that is going to force us to really think and to look at things possibly from a completely different perspective. You know, I sometimes find that perspectives can be challenging. I know in our household, we sometimes have different opinions about the term need versus want. I have an entire garage full of tools that I allegedly need and have no craftsmanship in these hands whatsoever. Being a husband of one wife and four daughters, we have had differing opinions of need versus want. Probably the other perspective that we sometimes need help with is that which we experience versus that which is reality. Today is going to deal with a term that we'll use the already but the not yet. And so sometimes that which we experience is not necessarily the reality. And so we'll look at that. Last week, um, Bob talked about, and didn't Bob crush that last week? That was just an incredible sermon last week by Bob, and I really appreciate it. I got a lot out of it myself. I think that sometimes we have these tough times in our life, right? Tough things to hear. But ultimately, I would ask that you'd bear with me today. Because there is a temptation in me, and the temptation is to tell people what they want to hear. But today, I can promise you, um, I'm going to fear God more than I do you. And I'm just going to say what God's Word says, and we're going to have to wrestle with it together. If I had the power of God, this is one of those things where I would come in and make some changes. But since I don't have the power of God, and I clearly don't have the wisdom of Him, we're just going to leave it how it is. Okay? Last week, Bob talked about the comparison of Jesus to God. And what we learned from that comparison is that there's a lot of similarity between Jesus and God, so much so that we determine that Jesus is in fact God. We also are going to look this week today at contrast. And contrast isn't about the things that we have in common, but the things that are different between us and that which we are contrasting. But when Bob spoke last week, he, what touched me was Colossians 1.15, when it says, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The Greek word icon is used for the word image there. It means, of course, not only a likeness, it means a material image. The word itself means the exact image. So much so that Jesus is in fact God, that he is the image of the invisible God, and that he is the firstborn of all creation. Probably another takeaway for me was the term preeminent. It came to us in Colossians 1.18 where it says, and he is the head of the body, he being Christ, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This word preeminent just means supreme. It means that he has the highest possible dignity. He is not only the first in rank, he is chief or supreme in all things. 
because in everything he might be preeminent. It means that he has to be preeminent in our salvation or supreme in our salvation as well. Today's subject is the ideal salvation. And what we will see is the connectivity to what Bob spoke last week and what we're talking about today is directly connected in its context. This sermon is a continuation of what Bob preached last week. And to understand it is to understand that for us to have the ideal salvation, we have to, it has to come from the ideal savior. I remember years and years ago, lifeguarding at Manhattan Beach in the 1980s. And I remember how people would go out and some kids would like to get out there and pretend that they're drowning so that they could get the lifeguard off the stand and run out there and save them just to get out there and find them stand up on the sandbar. I'm fine, man. You see, they weren't ever actually in the need of a savior. They didn't need anyone to rescue them. Today we will look at the word of God and see how desperately we need our Savior. All the comparisons of God to Jesus being the exact image. But Paul is going to segue from understanding Jesus as God to understanding our condition before we knew Christ. And that condition he's going to start with poses a lot of ripple in the pond effect of our thinking and it's going to require us to look at perspective i remember years ago i was teaching a class and the class was actually entitled the sovereignty of god and the free will of man and we were there to reconcile those things how does that possibly work it is true that there is freedom of the will and that man makes his choices based upon his inclination or his disposition at any particular moment. Your inclination is that which you are naturally designed with. It is your sin nature that you are naturally inclined with. Your disposition is your attitude at any one particular moment. And that can in fact inflame or pour gasoline on your inclination. But one of the examples or illustrations I gave one of the students in the class, a cardiovascular surgeon named Dr. Liu. And I said, Dr. Liu, will you help us with this illustration? I said, what I need you to do for the rest of the class is to simply describe the color blue. I said, go ahead. He says, wow, um, blue. Uh, blue is the color of the sky. And I said, oh, oh, hold on, Dr. Liu, time out, time out. My bad, my bad. Uh, the audience is blind. Okay, go. He says, okay. Um, I guess it would be soft to the touch. It might be cool like ice in your, in your taste. Oh, 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 time out, time out. No taste, no touch, no sight. Okay, go. He says, well, before I get there, will they, do they have the ability to hear? Oh, no. Nope, no hearing. They also, they also can't smell. Okay, go. He says, Jeff, as, I mean, as a cardiovascular surgeon, the person you're describing is dead. I said, that is correct, go. <laughs> this is what our chore is with the gospel. We are preaching the gospel to people that are dead in their trespasses. 
They have no ability within themselves to hear the gospel, to see the gospel, to smell, taste, or touch the gospel. They are dead. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2.1. He says, and you were, talking about before Christ, were dead in the trespasses and sins. Time starts to play a relevant part for us here. The text today is going to deal with contrast. And it's the contrast of who we were to whom God is making us to be. And he's going to do this over a period of time. But one of the greatest difficulties we have is we have a tendency to make scripture about ourselves. We insert ourselves into God's word. And I'm here to tell you today that scripture is not about you and is not about me. It is entirely about God. In fact, that which he is revealing is that which he spoke into existence in those same six days before time existed. Think of it as a curtain that is drawing back on your time and life and is revealing to you his plan that he already spoke into existence. Our difficulty is sometimes we think about life from the point of our salvation to the point that God takes us home. Whereas God's word is about eternity past to eternity future. And God revealing to us his plan that he decreed or that which he spoke into existence. With that in mind, I want to pray that our hearts are right as we dig into his word. Our Father and our God, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Help us, Lord, to see your word as sufficient. That no matter what we feel we need, that you actually are the one who provides us with everything. No matter what we experience, Lord, may it be your word that clarifies it. Help us to have a perspective of how lowly we are, but how holy you are. Help us, Lord, to grow in your grace and in the knowledge of your son. Amen. So we're in Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23. Paul starts by saying, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, that which you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Our first point today in verses 21 and 22 is the goal of reconciliation. What is God's goal of our reconciliation? In simplicity, it's to be holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The goal of our reconciliation is that the requirement to enter into the presence of God, to enter into the holy of holies, is that you would in fact be perfect, holy, and blameless, above reproach. This can only happen through Christ. Paul begins to outline the benefits that come to those who trust in the Savior. 
And since the Apostle Paul has just finished speaking of the divine reconciliation that was affected through the sacrifice of Christ, Paul begins by accomplishing a contrast. And he's contrasting the condition of the Colossians before they knew Christ with their life after coming to the knowledge of Christ or to the faith of Christ. The picture of their life prior to Jesus is incredibly bleak. This is all of our standing before a holy God. When we are conceived in sin and we are born into this world, we are alienated from this God, separated, and are in fact spiritually dead. There is no life in our spirit. While our physical life continues to be hostile towards God. You see, alienation from the hostility towards the true God defined what the Colossians' lives, along with their evil deeds, to be the natural overflow or the outflow of a depraved mind. You remember in Romans 1, God handed us over in the fall of man to a depraved or a debased mind. It means that in ourselves we are entirely or wholly corrupt. One can't add one drop of poison to water without the entire water being corrupt. This one's good, so I'm going to have to. We start to realize that it's popular both inside and outside the church to see people, for the most part, as just simply confused. That's not what Paul's saying here. To be clear, Paul is referring to this unregenerate people. Unregenerate just means non-believer. But the reason why we use unregenerate versus non-believer because the term non-believer leaves you with some hope for the believer. Unregenerate means that they're dead. They're turned off. Right now I hope for most of you your cars in the parking lot are dead. And when you go back out to them to go home, you'll put your key in it, or nowadays your auto button just have to have it on you, right? You will regenerate that car. You will make it alive so that it can take you home. God, in a sense, has come and reconciled by putting the key into you and turning you on so that you can respond in faith and obedience to his word. We see this aspect of trying to wrestle with, yeah, but in comparison, this person is really an okay guy. He's a good guy. You've been to funerals and heard people say about the guy who you think in your mind lived not a life of God, but everyone's saying he was a good guy. That kind of comparison is the wrong thing to be doing. I remember years ago, my father-in-law was so upset with my preaching on this particular subject, he came to me and he says, Jeff, are you telling me that your daughters, your four beautiful girls, are desperately wicked? And I said, depends on to whom you're comparing them. I said, if you're comparing them to the beauty and the loveliness of a holy and supreme God, they are desperately wicked. If you're comparing them to that little girl across the street, they're pretty doggone good. Because <laughs> she's evil. <laughs> right? 
But look at what God said at the very beginning of time about mankind. And I want to inform you, nothing's changed except for Christ in certain people. But humanity and your fleshly desires remain intact and in the same. This is how God saw you in Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Can it be more descriptive? This is alienated. This is hostile towards God. It's evil deeds. Scripture tells me that even my good deeds are as filthy rags. They're corrupted because of my nature. The psalmist in 116.11 says, I said in my alarm, I said in my shock, I said in my dismay, all mankind, not some of them, all mankind are liars. You see, we were like this before we knew Jesus as our Savior. Our Savior who adopted us into God's family. You see, Bob last week interjected a thought for us to consider, and that was the, 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 the law of causality. I'm going to modify that a little bit this week because as we look at some of these terms and some of these words, what I want you to be looking for is what we call primary causality. Not just the law of cause and effect, but primary causality. What ticked it off? What got it going? What made it happen? Just as last week, Bob said that God created something from nothing. You are dead in your trespasses. You are nothing. And God is about to do something incredible. He's going to make you something. And it's for himself. He did this while we were sinners, right? Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will sacrifice or uh, scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In our depravity, in our separation, in our alienation, God was the primary causality that moved you from lost to saved. From sinner to saint. Because of what he's done. You see our condition as those reconciled to God. To God the Father is far different for Jesus died for us with the purpose of specifically transforming us. And he's transforming us from enemies of God into holy and blameless saints. Remember how Paul started the letter? To the saints and to the faithful brothers and sisters. He's writing to those people whom God is supremely sovereign and has chosen to save those people. We start to wrestle with terms, but we start to look at the primary causality. Romans 8, 29 and 30. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Similar language to Colossians. Colossians says that the the gospel has gone to all the creation. Now, as brothers and sisters, we know that has not yet happened. There's still more people in this world on parts of this earth that have not heard this good news of Jesus Christ. But Paul is so confident, so confident that he brings it with assurance that it's a fact that it's already, but not yet. It's so factual that it can't be taken away. Just as he says, those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. You're not getting your glorified body until Christ returns. When the sixth seal is broken and God dresses everyone in their glorified state, he's coming back to save the lost and to judge the quick and the dead. But Paul is so confident that he says it as if it's already happened. There's an incredible progress that takes place when we place our faith in the person of Jesus Christ. We begin to grow in our awareness of the holiness of God, and we grow in the awareness of our continuing sinful desires. John Calvin said it this way, this holiness is nothing more than begun in us. And indeed, every day it's making progress, but will not be perfected until Christ shall appear for the restoration of all things. We lug around our fleshly desires, our sinfulness, as God is transforming us and conforming us to the image of himself. He's not making us into our own unique, simple individual. It's not the you-do-you world that you can become your own unique being in Christ. No, he is transforming you into the image of himself. The person that he wants to see is himself, the absolute image of God. Perfect, holy, and blameless. And this is his promise. He's going to present you before God the Father as that. He's going to take that which was nothing and he's going to make it into something extraordinary. Two weeks ago, Thomas said it this way in verse 12 giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's qualified you. Some of us think so highly of ourselves that we think that I'm I'm doing a good job, I'm becoming a better Christian, I'm doing good things. No, you're already qualified but you're being regenerated and you're being uh, sanctified by God. I know the feeling of sanctification. Sanctification feels like you're being pulled through a keyhole by your feet because God is in fact sending test after test, trial after trial, and what he wants to see is your perseverance to draw near to him, to hold fast to the gospel and to know that you have been set free from the bondage of sin and with the indwelling Holy Spirit, you can obey. 
but apart from him, you can do nothing. <coughs> Last week, Bob shared with us this everything might be preeminent. But he started by saying he is the image of the invisible God. Our Savior is the firstborn of all creation. He is the one who caused all things to be created. He created everything in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Brothers and sisters, in this current time of turmoil in our country, that should give you all the hope you need. God's in control. No matter how wicked our leaders become, God is in control, and you can put your trust in that. All things were created through him and for him. That includes you and me. We are his for his use because he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, <clears throat> that in everything he might be preeminent, supreme, the chief of all things. Christ is the primary causality in everything because he is preeminent. He is supreme. Our salvation is therefore, because of that, irresistible. When God puts his affection upon you and he is supreme in all of his activity, he's preeminent. I can't reject preeminence because then that would make me supreme he is high he is lofty paraphrasing c.s lewis who said no sooner do we receive the love of god through salvation we think that it is something lovable intrinsically beautiful about me and we forget who gave it to us we abuse his grace and we take credit for that which squarely belongs on him. <clears throat> Listen, brothers and sisters, I'm not going to argue that you made a choice. You responded in faith. You raised your hand. You prayed a prayer. You came forward at a camp. But don't confuse the experience of the event with the primary causality of it in the first place. For Christ in Christ alone is preeminent in our salvation. We can't have an ideal salvation without an ideal savior. Otherwise, you're that punk kid at the beach who stood up on the sandbar and said, I don't need you. Oh, you need him. You need him every day. But those, those who are declared righteous begin to act righteous. And we grow in love for our savior. We grow in personal holiness throughout our Christian walk. There becomes no believer that God is not working to make holy and blameless. This is sanctification. You cannot separate sanctification from salvation. He who began a good work in you will complete that work until the end of the age. It's what leads to our second point here, the gospel in perseverance. Verse 23, here's what Paul said. He throws out what seems to be a condition. 
I'm going to show you how it's not conditional, but it's a result of. What he says is, if indeed you have this reconciliation, you were once lost and depraved, but now you have Christ in you. If indeed, or as a result of Christ being in you, continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And that already but not heard statement, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. You see, biblical perseverance is a continuation of salvation through the process of sanctification. Philippians 1.6, I already said it was, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or 2 Corinthians 1, verses 22 and 22, it says, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. Whose primary causality? It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Do you realize how beautiful that statement is? For those of you who bought a home and you've had to put an earnest deposit down on that home and then decided, oh, we're backing out of the deal, but you lost your $1,000, you lost your $5,000 in that earnest deposit, that's tragic. But think of it this way from this perspective. God has put a deposit in you and it's the Holy Spirit and he's promising I'm coming back for you and if I don't, you get to keep the Holy Spirit. That should give you the most assurance you could possibly have. He's coming back. He's made the deal and he's gonna come and get you and he's gonna get his Holy Spirit and you're attached to it so it's coming with him. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast. You see, likened to those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he has glorified already but not yet. It's being said with absolute confidence that this thing is so true, it's already happened, but not yet. But we need to hold true in our perseverance and cling to the cross because the biblical doctrine of perseverance tells us that everyone who is truly converted will remain a believer till the end of this life and eternity forward. There is blessed assurance of salvation. It's true. Some of us may find ourselves in seasons where we're backslidden and we're not really walking strongly with our Lord. But if he who created that good work will complete that work to the end of the age, he's coming for you. He's coming for you like one of the lost sheep and he's going to put you on his shoulders and he's going to carry you back to the fold. Because not one sheep will escape the hands of our Savior. He is faithful to provide the biblical perseverance is not once saved, always saved. It's true when you put your, your faith in him, when you trust and you respond to a salvation given to you, it won't be taken away. But it's also not that one moment of belief. For even the demons believe and shudder. There has to be a progression of growth into sanctification. You see, it's not, the Bible is not about our point of conversion. It's about the completion of our salvation. It's about him and him alone. 
It has nothing to do with us, although we are incredible benefactors of it. But his word is to his glory, to his honor, not of us. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit guarantees that the called will in fact make a response. I think of that verse, Ephesians 2, when he says that you have been saved by grace through faith, not of works, should any man boast, but it's the free gift of God. Brothers, go back and just stare at that word, been. You have been. See, for you to recognize your salvation, you have to already have it. It's like the love of a child, the love of your parent. You never catch it on the front end. You recognize that it already existed. God is primary causality. It should cause us to be thankful. And it should propel us to good works. Look at what James says in James 2 in verses 14, 18, and 26. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Verse 18, but someone I will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, it's alienated, so also faith apart from works is dead, it's alienated. If you don't see a progression of good works in your life, then step back and fall to the ground and say, Lord, save me. The doctrine of perseverance explains why Paul asserts in verses 21 and 22 that believers have been reconciled to God, but then in verse 23 tells them that they've been reconciled only if they continue as a result of faith in the hope of the gospel. It's a contrast. I once was alienated. I've been made alive in Christ. And that love of Christ in me compels me to serve Christ and his kingdom. It is consistent and continual possession of faith that saves us. It calls us to be stable and steadfast. That terminology that Paul's using here of stable and steadfast is the hope of the gospel comes from a Greek term and it's referring to the foundation of a building. And what it's saying is that just as architectural integrity requires a good foundation, so does your salvation. For he is our cornerstone. He is the rock that holds us together. He created us and he sustains us. Even true Christians may wonder at times if they are truly God's children at all. These moments of doubt and one of many ways you can find assurance for your salvation is to look at the evidence of your perseverance. Look back from who you were to who you are to now. Look at the works of God in your life. Look how he has set you free, how he has changed your heart. And worship him. You see, we cannot abuse his grace by attributing anything of ourselves for all glory must go to him. It's all about him. It's all 
about him. It's not about us. He must be first and he must be foremost. Why? Because our salvation comes from this. Our salvation comes from the image of the invisible God. It comes from the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's supreme. And we must step out of his path. Martin Luther, the reformer of the church, 500 years ago in one of his sermons said this, if any man ascribes anything of salvation, even the very least thing to the free will of man, he does not know grace and has not learned Jesus Christ rightly. It's not that he didn't say, I want to accept you in my life, that he prayed a prayer. That's not the point. It's the attributing that I'm saved because of me. The issue revolves around I'm saved because of exclusively him. Not of myself. So how do I remain stable and steadfast? Part of the great joy in my life is that Thomas gets to tell you that next week as we continue on in the scripture. <laughs> but I can tell you how it starts. It starts by rejoicing in your sufferings. Sounds counterintuitive. But to rejoice in your sufferings because that's the place that you're most trusting and most dependent upon the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to segue, and the band's going to come up, and they're going to lead us in a song. We sang this song for the first time last week. And I know we are typically known as one of those frozen, chosen churches, but i got to tell you, you need to let yourself go a little bit, and you need to celebrate what God has done on your behalf. Amen. And you need to sing these songs that says, I don't want to abuse your grace. I need it every day. It's the only thing that ever really makes me want to change. Your forgiveness is like sweet, sweet honey on my lips. Let's sing to our God and thank Him and Him alone for our salvation. To God be the glory. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I hope you are encouraged with what God has done on your and my behalf. That he is not only the author, he is the perfecter of our faith. And he will complete that work until you go home or he comes and gets you. Amen? May we live to the glory of God. May we give every credit to him and him alone for everything. He is preeminent. I love you guys. I hope to see you again next week. God bless. Thank you.